I'm glad he introduces everybody. It helps. So I'll introduce myself too. Um, my name is Brett. I am one of the here. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I can be loud. Yep. Cool. All right, so I'm going to start with a story. The mic comes in and out on the story. It's not scripture, so we're good there, right? Um, but my old brother turned 10 years old last March, and um, someone, I think it was Sean, actually, told me about a book called Raising a Modern Day Night by Robert Lewis. And the book is guiding fathers on how to raise their boys to be authentic, godly men. And it was a really good book that brought um, a lot of great things to light for me that I hadn't really thought about or that I at least hadn't put um, words around thoughts. And so the book walks through different ceremonies at like 10, 13, 18, and so on. And then, you know, the first one, so when Carter turned 10, he and I took a trip. We went on I can admit, see, this is the beauty of the small room, right? Like, I could, I could just go if I needed to. Um, but so, um, Carter turned 10, we went on an adventure. We got to go mountain biking in Bentonville, Arkansas, which, if, side note, this is free. If you've never been to Bentonville and you're into mountain biking, you need to go. And you better tell me because I'm going to come with you, okay? Um, but highly recommend it. He, um, he loved it, but going into the trip, I had two very simple goals, okay? The first goal was to have an adventure with my son, right? And then the second goal was that by the time we got home, I wanted Carter to be able to define what it means to be a godly man. Now, at 10, not necessarily understand, but wanted him to be able to define what it means to be a man when we got home. So this idea of defining what it means to be a man, and more specifically, what it means to be a godly man, was something I'm sure that I thought about Right, I had certainly, um, like, like I could answer it if you asked me what does it mean to be a man, um, and I like to think that there would be like Jesus in that answer, right? But I didn't have a definition. Like you could ask me five different times across five different months, and I'd give you five different answers. Um, and so I could do it, but I didn't have a defined definition. I heard John Piper say one time that the church needs an answer to the eight-year-old boy that asks, mommy or daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? And that last part is very important, right? What does it mean to be a man and not a woman? And what Piper is doing when he adds that very important part is drilling down to biblical masculinity and not just what he would call godly humanness, which I will get a little bit into later this morning. I absolutely agree with Piper here, right? We, as believers, need to be able to answer that question, what does it mean to be a man? Now, I'm not going to stand in front of you all this morning and declare that I have uncovered the one and only definition of what it means to be a man. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, thus saith the Lord is a man, right? But um, what I am going to do is share a definition that I have pulled from that book um, that's rooted in Scripture 
and it's formed based on the example of Jesus Christ. And I went back and looked on my Amazon account, actually, for when I bought that book, um, and it was June of a year ago. So exactly a year ago. Um, the Holy Spirit has been kind of stirring and brewing this inside of me for years. So before I go on any further, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray um, before we go forward. All right, God, thank you for... Um, where we are right here, right now, this morning. God, thank you that um, you are, <laughs> you're bigger than a sound system, you're bigger than a mic, God, that I ask that you would free us of distraction, God, I ask that you would use me as a vessel this morning, God, to um, bring your word, God, and that's what would be heard this morning is your word, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So roadmap for this morning, which, um, by the way, happy Father's Day again, gentlemen. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what Piper was getting at, right, masculinity as opposed to humanness, and then we're going to work through a four-part definition of authentic biblical manhood that I got from Robert Lewis and the folks at Authentic Manhood, right? Um, now, where this comes from is comparing and contra contrasting Adam with Jesus. So again, I'm giving them credit here. I didn't come up with this definition on my own, but I 100% believe that the Holy Spirit has put it on me to share it with y'all this morning. And again, I promise I didn't ask to preach on Father's Day, right? That's just how it played out. Um, it was coincidence. Um, and yes, it does turn out that I'm preaching on manhood on Father's Day. Again, that's just how it played out. But ladies, don't check out on me, okay? Don't check out. This message is directed primarily toward men, yes, but it is not only for men, right? In this church, we've got every situation you can think of. We've got male, female, single, married, right? With kids, without kids. We've got brothers, we've got sisters, you name it. This is gonna be for all of us, I promise. Um, so I'm gonna give you the four pillars right up front. Let them marinate, let them simmer, and then we're gonna unpack each one. All right, so here they are. Number one, a real man accepts responsibility. Number two, a real man will reject passivity. Number three, a real man will lead courageously. And number four, a real man will invest eternally. All right, so what's the point, though? Like, why do we even need this structured definition of manhood? Well, I'm glad you asked because it is being defined and it is being played out whether you like it or not. If we don't stand up and say, this is what I'm about, like this is what God has called me to, our culture, y'all, and our society will do it for you. And without a compelling vision for biblical masculinity, um, the culture's gonna do it. And it, it has done it in two kind of overarching themes already. So I'm gonna look at those. The first one is the macho man, right? The manly man. This is, this is the guy that says stuff like, quit crying, suck it up, be a man. Men don't feel, right? Don't cry, men don't feel, men do. Fix it. Don't be weak, fix it. Now, sitting in my office at home working through this, um, like talking it, writing it out. And at the moment that I said that, like be a man, my wife Ashley walks in and like the beautiful, incredible, godly woman that she is, she gave me an opinion. 
and she, she said, like, you can't say that. Like, that, you can't say be a man. That phrase, like, that needs to be removed from my vocabulary, act like a man, right? And in, in that context of yelling at somebody saying, you need to quit crying and suck it up, I would 100% agree, because that's garbage, right? 100% agree. However, I would argue that acting like a man and the phrase be a man absolutely must be a part of our vocabulary. We just got to do a better job of defining it. So the second bucket that our culture has developed is one of sameness, where men and women are the same, right? Across the board, there's no difference. There's nothing distinct that a man is called to. There's nothing distinct that a woman is called to, and we're just all the same. And I think this is the narrative that, like, when taken to an extreme, gives us the, remember the the dad of the 90s sitcoms, right? That's, like, incompetent. He's incapable, right? He's just kind of there, and it messes everything up, and then, like, the, the woman runs the show, right? This is like, remember Ray from Everybody Loves Raymond, right? Like, Tim the Toolman Taylor going way back, right? These people have no idea what I'm talking about over here. If, like, ask somebody born before 1990, okay? They'll explain what I'm talking about. But we got to be able to define it. So, that sameness, right? That, that, that's, I know, I know that, like, did anybody, anybody get to go to the Risen Institute, the last Risen Institute class with Dr. Allison? Um, some of us were there, some of us weren't, but in that, um, in, in that institute class, Dr. Allison talked about human embodiment, and he presented this idea that we are all, as Christians, given the same attributes, both male and female. There are no particular properties that belong exclusively to women or that belong exclusively to men, and when I heard him say that, I just started sweating. Right, because like I'm getting ready to preach this this sermon on biblical masculinity, right? And he's just wrecking it out. I'm like, shoot, right? So um, this guy's smart. He's brilliant. He's a seminary professor, and so I'm like, okay, I'm I'm in trouble here. But after I got over the initial panic of having to completely restart on a sermon, um, sat in it for a few days, got my head around it. Um, I prayed about it a lot. I sought some wisdom from godly people who are well-read in the scriptures, and here's where I landed. Many would and could argue that any command that God would put on the man, he also puts on the woman, so that all of us are being called equally as Christ followers. It's not just the man that's called to be a leader, it's the woman that's called to be a leader. It's not just the man who is called into sacrificial love, it's also a woman that's called into sacrificial love, and to that, I would say yes. Also, right, who Jesus is, his character, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things, right, that um, it, it, it's, it's not, those are not properties unique to male or female. Having the character of Christ does not make a man a man or a woman a woman. It, it, to that, I would say yes, right? Piper, in that same discussion that I talked about earlier, um, Talks, tells a story about a woman who is asked to kind of describe her husband's masculinity. And she goes on to talk about how kind he is, like how, how humble he is, right? And none of those things actually address his masculinity, just his humanness. Now, in Scripture, when both the man and the woman are in view, God creates distinction, Right? There is distinction between male and female. So turn with me, if you will, get your Bibles out or phones, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, 
verse 22 through 31. It says this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, if the scripture stopped right there at verse 24 and did not go on to verse 25, then the people that, that pluck that verse out and use it as a weapon might have a leg to stand on, right? These are the people that pull that out and use it as, as a weapon to dominate, to establish um, a, an unhealthy authority, right? What I would argue to some is an, an abusive view on how to treat women as men, right? However, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to verse 25, and verse 25 absolutely destroys that idea. It says this, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis chapter two and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God through Paul to the Ephesians and for us creates distinction between man and woman. He doesn't say here, hey, y'all submit to each other. He doesn't say y'all love each other as Christ loved the church. Yes, I'm pretty sure Paul says y'all, I don't know. But are there places in the scriptures where we are all as believers called to sacrificial love? Yes. But right here with both the man and the woman in view, he creates distinction, right? He, he calls the man to love the woman sacrificially, to lay down his life for her because that's what Christ did for his bride, the church. God is going straight at the natural disposition in the man and then the man that he designed and created, by the way, God is going straight at the natural disposition that all men who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God possess, which is selfish aggression. He drives a dagger directly through the heart of that with these commands to love sacrificially and then to leave his father and mother and become one flesh. And now this is moving toward the family idea, right? This is why in verse four of chapter six, Paul says this. He says, fathers, not mothers, but fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me tell you a quick story that illustrates this, okay? And that also serves as a reminder that this stage and this pulpit does not create or expect perfection, but that I, right, just like every believer in the room uh, am washed by the blood of the lamb, I am prone to sin, and I am walking through a lifelong process of sanctification. So this probably was about a year ago, maybe two, I don't remember, but um, it was that time of night when uh, we're putting kids to bed, right? It's like the game of whack-a-mole that is putting four kids to bed, and it's in full swing. My oldest son, Carter, 
Carter's a big part of this today. I don't know why. My oldest son, Carter, and my youngest son, Jay, were roughhousing in Jay's bedroom. And I had already, as I recall, um, gone in there very nicely and calmly and politely asked them to stop fighting. Um, And then I moved on to another room to put another kid down. And on my way to the other room, I hear this just loud crash come from the room. And I flipped right? Like I turned around, I blew through the bedroom door and like in one motion, just right on Carter's rear end. I spanked him, right? And almost instantly, the reality of the situation crashed down on me. See, they were just playing basketball nicely together on one of those little rims that hangs over the door and it just made a loud noise. Carter had done nothing wrong. And I, dad, was unequivocally in the wrong. Now, (laughs) hear me, I was not wrong for disciplining my child, right? I was wrong for the condition of my heart and unleashing, um, not discipline, but anger on my son. And if y'all wanna talk about what um, the scriptures say about discipline, please email me. Um, It's michael.darboos at (laughs) risen.org. I can get you the spelling if you need it. It's pronounced weird, but in that moment, Y'all, in that moment, I hugged that little boy tighter than I've ever hugged him in my life. And I begged for his forgiveness. And in my weakness, in my foolishness, in my harshness, I got to see a beautiful picture of the gospel that when Carter forgives me and responds in love for his daddy, we're reconciled and I'm reminded of God's love for me. Does my wife get angry with our kids? Yes. Right? Have I ever in 11 years of parenting seen her exasperate our children the way that I exasperated Carter that night? No, I have not. The Bible says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers who have a natural disposition toward aggression, it is on us not to exasperate our children. Men and women are created equal and yet not the same. There is distinction. So, How do we get here, right? Why is it that on Mother's Day, we have flowers and we have journals and we have books and on Father's Day, men get put on blast, period, right? There are no books, there are no journals, there are no flowers. There is only like, what's wrong with you, dude? There are some key events in our history that have contributed to the state of manhood that we find ourselves in in our country today, right? Uh, Things like the Industrial Revolution, where dads went from, we went from an agrarian society where dads are working in the fields shoulder to shoulder with their children all day long to a, a, a point where they leave the house, go to work all day long, and then come back with nothing else to give. What about the war years, right? Where, where the men in our country went and fought courageously, but then our husbands and our fathers came back changed and different, unable to connect emotionally at home. More recently, we're seeing a phenomenon called extended adolescence, right? Um, Men that fall into this category are sometimes called boys who shave. These are guys that graduate from college at 22, but then delay adulting, right, until their late 20s or even their early 30s. And these are the guys who, they drift, right? They focus on the next thrill. They focus on um, what's going to make them comfortable. And then our culture gives them a pass for like a decade before they have to become an adult. But all of these and more, right, um, have had significant influence from generation to generation on manhood. And um, even though I really want to go and unpack a lot of those, I just don't have time this morning. But I am going to go way back in history, all right, all the way back to the beginning, 
to take a look at Adam. Then we're going to fast forward to the New Testament, compare Adam with Jesus, and tease out a picture of a godly man. Okay, and so this morning I'm going to bounce around the Bible quite a bit. So rather than trying to flip through and keep up, I encourage you to do this. Okay, write down or take note of the scripture references. And now that I know from Michael's sermon last week that I can give homework, right? Um, <laughs> go back and read the context around each of the verses you hear. Okay, because like. When I, when I bounce around quickly like this, I run the risk of kind of cherry-picking verses to try to prove a point, and that is not at all my intention this morning, okay? I just don't have time to fully unpack the context around each verse. So follow along on the screen. Um, actually take notes. There's an idea, right? And then do your homework. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, okay? And here Paul is addressing Christ's resurrection. Now, look, I'm going to give context anyway. Look. Um, but at this point, okay, Paul is, or I'm sorry, yeah, Paul is addressing Christ's resurrection and then um, is, is comparing earthly things with heavenly things, okay? But as I read, notice his word choice when Paul gets to verse 25. It says this, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, who is Paul referring to when he says the last Adam? It's the Sunday school answer. It's the Gibby. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. The man God created in Genesis was the first Adam, and then Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And then earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul goes back and forth between the first Adam's one trespass or sin, and then the second Adam, Jesus's one act of righteousness. See, in that passage, Paul says that sin entered the world through Adam, and then through that sin entered death. But Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Adam failed, and with it came death. But Jesus redeemed that failure, and with it comes righteousness. Every man will follow in the footsteps of one of these two men. Let's say it again. Every man will follow in the footsteps of one of these two men. One theologian said it really well. He says, Adam and Christ stand over against each other as the two great figures at the entrance of two worlds, two creations, the old and the new. And in their actions and fate lie the decision for all who belong to them because all men are comprehended in them. When the first Adam is compared with the second Adam, four defining principles appear, and they're the ones that I laid out earlier that make up our definition, okay? So here is the first one. A real man accepts responsibility, okay? Both Adam and Jesus were given three responsibilities from God. Number one, they were given a will to obey, right? In John chapter four, the disciples tried to get Jesus to eat some food after traveling. They've been traveling. They come to uh, Samaria, and Jesus does his thing with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And then he comes back to the disciples and like, Jesus, you got to eat something, right? And then Jesus's response to them is this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, which Jesus does perfectly to completion. Adam failed in obeying God's will. Second, God gave them a work to do. In John chapter 17, right before the events that immediately precede the cross, um, Jesus prays to God and says, God, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Adam failed in accomplishing the work that God gave him to do in the garden. And then number three, God gave them a person to care for. 
or a people to care for. And again, back to that passage in Ephesians 5 that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Jesus loved his people so deeply that he literally died for them. And then Adam failed in loving the person that God gave him in the garden. He allowed Eve to be deceived, and then he straight up threw her under the bus when God called him into accountability. Principle number one, a real man accepts responsibility by obeying God's will for him, by doing the work that God has for him, yes, in his profession, but also in his home, in his church, in his community, and then by caring for those that God puts in his charge. Principle number two, a real man rejects passivity. Okay, now if you have boys, you know they're aggressive, right? And it gets worse as they get bigger. Um, and I love my boys, but it cracks me up when we're around other families. We've got three boys. And when we get around other families that have only girls, it takes all of about five minutes, right, for them to like see our boys play and be like, what's going on right now, right? Like, they're just aggressive, right? No, nobody, didn't, nobody taught them that. We didn't teach them that, right? I didn't teach them to beat the trash out of each other and then call it playing. They just do it. Like, it's innate, right? Now, do they get a pass because it's innate? No. Is it in their physiological and psychological makeup as males, not females? Yes. As a parent, do I teach and train them to harness that aggression? Yes. Can girls be aggressive? Yes. But there's a reason that the Bible calls out men directly in the passage we talked about earlier in Ephesians, right? Men have inherited from Adam this aggressive disposition. But that's not all we inherited from Adam, okay? In the same way that men are inherently aggressive, those men are inherently passive when it comes to spiritual action. When it comes to initiating spiritual action in their wives, in their families, and in their communities, we are passive. And here's where we get it from. Genesis chapter three, okay, in, in, in chapter three of Genesis, Satan in the form of a serpent is engaging in conversation with Eve. He is convincing and coaxing her to directly disobey God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we look at verse six, it says this, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, did you catch that? Where was Adam? Eve catches a bad rap, right? Because she ate the fruit first, but where was Adam? Was he off, like, working in the garden? Um, was he off hunting and, and gathering? Nope. Where was he? He was with her. He was with her, right? And what did he do? Nothing. Nothing, right? Eve didn't need physical protection here though, right? Like it's easy for us, I think, to get our minds around the idea of like a snake attacking somebody and a guy like stepping in, right? Moving Eve out of the way and just like chopping the snake's head off or whatever, but that's not what's happening here, right? Like they are engaged in conversation, right? Now, yes, it is a talking snake, okay? Let's not like, let's not, let's, let's, let's not, it is what it is, right? But this is a spiritual situation, right? The, the serpent is talking to Eve, convincing her that she can and should be like God, knowing good and evil. And rather than taking action and protecting Eve, Adam's passive. 
He just stands there, right? And then he eats too. He does, he, he follows the woman's lead, y'all. And so this is, this is just me, like this is just Brett Ferris thinking here, right? But I think this may be one of the greatest tragedies and contributors to brokenness in the world and in the church is men who are just standing there. Y'all, our children need their fathers to be active in their spiritual formation. Our wives crave their husbands to be active in the spiritual direction of their families until we step out of Adam's shadow and into Jesus's, I think we're gonna continue to spiral downward. I mean, and Paul, Paul makes it about as clear as it can be in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. He says, in Adam, all die, but Jesus, amen? But Jesus, let me give you an example where God places Jesus face-to-face with sin, and Jesus takes action. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Now, I'm gonna take a little bit of liberty here. I'm gonna take a lot of liberty, okay? So don't email me. But I'm, I'm just trying to imagine like how that goes down in the throne room, right? Now, scripture, scripture doesn't say how the Trinity communicates within the Trinity, but like, so I, again, taking liberty, but God's like, hey, Jesus, like, I know you're holy. I know you're righteous. I know you're all-knowing. I know you're God, but like these people down here are a mess, and I'm talking like dumpster fire mess, all right? And so what I've got in my mind, I've got a proposition for you. What if you empty yourself of all that and put on some skin, go down there and live among them, not like them, among them, and then die a horribly painful death to save them? Does that sound good, right? Jesus did exactly that. He wasn't passive. He didn't shy away from the opportunity to step in the gap for his bride. Principle number two, a real man rejects passivity. And then number three, a real man leads courageously. Leads courageously. Men were created to lead. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians eleven three. He says this, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband. Now this, this, this principle is tied very closely to the last one, right? When men make the choice to reject passivity, the resulting action is then leadership. In the moment where Eve needed him to be the man God called him to be, Adam failed, right? She needed him to step in and lead her away from the lie that Satan was feeding her, right? And back to the truth that God had spoken to them and he failed. Now, can a woman be a leader? Yes, right? Believe me, I'm married to an incredible one, right, ladies? Right? Take a look at Melissa Peterson on a Sunday morning. Tell me women can't lead. But men are called to be spiritual leaders, right? Again, if the men in the church across the world today consistently rejected passivity, right, and led courageously in love, the way Jesus commands, I'm telling y'all, this place would look completely different. The world would look very, very different. All right, we got, we got accept responsibility. We got reject passivity. We got lead courageously. And then finally, we've got invest eternally. Invest eternally. Jesus was in the business of saving lost souls, right? He was a carpenter by trade, but what the writers of the scriptures chose to overwhelmingly share were the teachings and the interactions that presented and pointed to one thing, and it's the gospel, 
Jesus invested in the eternal, not the worldly. And he, Adam went after what he thought would satisfy in the moment, right? And he failed. And this is a huge part of what Michael taught last week, right? He's taught, who are we pursuing and who are we chasing after so that they may know our Lord and Savior? Then we must invest our time, our energy, and our resources in heavenly treasures. Yes, we need to work, we need to have a vocation, and we need to have hobbies, but for crying out loud, we have got to be prepared to speak the truth of the gospel and of the word of God into those we have influence over better than we can convince them who the best school in the SEC is. When we see through the lens of investing eternally, though, then our jobs and our hobbies, they become opportunities to further the gospel rather than obligations and wasted time. We have got to invest in our own spiritual growth We've got to invest in our wives' spiritual growth. We've got to pour deeply into them. We've got to pursue real relationships with other believers and non-believers around us. And we have got to get down on our knees and play and pray with our kids. Invest in the things that have eternal significance. All right, recap. Did you take notes? Accept responsibility. Reject passivity lead courageously, and invest eternally. So, application. All right, what does all this do for us? Like, what does a now more clearly defined picture of a godly man mean for us? Um, I want you to take a look around the room. For real, like take a 360 degree look around the room, right? Like I said before, we've got every situation you can think of in here, right? We've got married men and married women. We've got single men and single women. We got parents, grandparents, with kids, without kids. We got brothers, sisters, we got sons and daughters, right? If we walk out of here convicted this morning, then hallelujah, because that means the Lord's working, amen? But if we walk out of here discouraged this morning, then I have failed because there is hope. Y'all, there is hope in Jesus, amen? There is hope in the word of God for the single mom who after hearing all this talk about manhood is left wondering, where does this leave me? It leaves you with a heavenly father who is good and who is perfect and who is 100% sufficient for you, right? Timothy, who the apostle Paul places incredible trust and responsibility on, was led to faith by his grandmother and his mother. Did you know that? Go back and read First and Second Timothy and look at Second Timothy chapter one, verse five. It says, I, Paul, am reminded of your, Timothy, of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandma Lois and your mother Eunice, and now it dwells in you. There's hope for sons and daughters whose dads never taught them any of this, whose dads didn't model this or whose dads weren't even there. Because you have a heavenly father who in giving us the scriptures has equipped you with everything you need in this world and who has surrounded you with other believers to walk with you as you use his word in your life. Go read the book of Titus. Look at chapter two, where Paul lays out how men and women in the church are to act and to be, and how they are to teach and train younger generations. Y'all look around you. Like dad may not have been there, but there are men and women in this room who God has gifted to teach and train in the ways of the Lord. There's hope. There is hope for all of us in the gospel. God, it's good. Amen. Guys, let me leave you with a story. I heard a pastor tell it, but he got it from scripture, so I'm pretty sure that means I'm not stealing it, but whatever. Um, 
It's the story of the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. And so what's happening here is that um, God is like straight getting after it through Paul. Um, they, they are healing, right? People are, they're, they're casting out evil spirits. It's like, I mean, people are like brushing up against Paul's clothes and then like taking that power back and healing people in a different place altogether. They're getting after it. Um, and then these seven guys who were Jewish exorcists, which is apparently a thing, um, came in and were like, hey, I want to get in on this too. Right? And so they, um, they find a guy who has an evil spirit inside of him and they come up to this evil spirit and then they say, hey, I command you to get out by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then the evil spirit answers him. The evil spirit looks at him and says, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul. Who are you? Right? And, then, and, then, and then he attacks him and they run out of the house naked and wounded. Right now, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a boxing match before where like at the end, the referee holds the two fighters hands, right? And like, you're not sure who wins and he raises one. Like I'm telling you, if one of those dudes is standing there naked, like that dude got beat, period, right? And y'all, I, I don't wanna get beat. I don't want us to be a people that anyone would say about us. I know Jesus, I've heard of them. Who are you? Like, I'm almost 40, right? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm in the thick of things. Like, some people say we're coming into our prime at this age. I don't know, but I don't want to miss the fight, and I don't want you to either. I want to invite you men to join the fight with me, to reject passivity and step into leadership. Ladies, I want to invite you to join the fight now by expecting these greater things of the men in your life and encouraging them in that so that no one could say of us, I know Jesus, but who are you? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the hope that every single person in this room has in you. There is no circumstance, there is no situation that is exempt from your grace and from your mercy and from the, the penalty that you paid for our sins so that we may know you. God, and so I pray that if there's anyone in this room that, that feels the weight of that this morning, God, that they would not leave here discouraged, but they would leave here with hope and that they would know that that can only be filled in Jesus. That that gap can only be filled by Jesus. God, I thank you that, that, that you are accessible to anyone and everyone. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.